Does Canada have its own Jesse Smollett? An Ontario NDP MPP has responded to allegations that he faked being punched in the face at an Ottawa gender ideology protest. A report by RBC shows that housing affordability in Toronto and Vancouver is likely past the point of no return and is irreparable. Alberta's education system is being scrutinized by a Canadian think tank for failing to provide students with people skills in areas like communication and leadership. Hello Canada, it's Tuesday, June 13th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Rachel Emanuel. And I'm Lindsay Shepard. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. The Ottawa Police Service is declining to comment on NDP MPP Joel Hardin's claims that he was punched in the face during a protest against gender ideology. An OPS spokesperson told True North, quote, We do not comment on active investigations or disseminate any information regarding complainants or victims. We encourage anyone to file a report online or through our police reporting unit. Five individuals were arrested for assault on Friday during the demonstration. They were all released from police custody unconditionally and no charges were laid. Hardin responded to allegations that the incident did not take place. The NDP MPP put out a statement online where he said, quote, Last Friday, I broke up several altercations or near altercations that got started by anti-trans protesters. In one of these occasions, a woman was grabbing another woman by the hair. I put my body between them and separated them. Hardin did not share footage of the described altercation on Twitter, and his office did not respond to a query from True North about the existence of such footage. Further, footage showing an altercation where a woman grabs another woman by the hair does not appear to show Hardin, who was wearing a rainbow suit at the protest. Many have since accused the Ottawa Centre representative of lying, while others are comparing him to American actor Jesse Smollett, who notoriously staged a hate crime in 2019. Hardin, who protested in favor of gender ideology along with members of Antifa and other left-wing activists, shared a photo of himself with a cut on his face. He tweeted, quote, I'll take a punch for queer and trans youth any day. So, Lindsay, this is an interesting development in this story here. There was so much footage of the protest circulating over the weekend. I suspect that if Hardin isn't lying about breaking up an altercation and then being smacked with his own megaphone causing the cut on his cheek, that footage would likely have a merge by now. And if it hasn't, I'm sure it will come forth. What's your take here? Yeah, everyone's looking for this footage on Twitter. You have many people looking for it um, of this alleged incident. And, you know, just the fact that his first initial tweet of his face with the cut was, you know, like you said, I'll take a punch for queer and trans youth any day. So you would assume he was literally like a fist made contact with his cheek. Um, It's clear now that absolutely didn't happen. He was just trying to be some sort of hero. And then you had, you know, the Ontario NDP leader, Merritt Stiles. You had Jagmeet Singh, leader of the federal NDP, you know, fawning all over him. And then Joel was, you know, responding with hearts or whatever. Um, It's clear that he was trying to be some sort of hero. 
but he seemed to have kind of made it all up in his head. It is fairly bizarre that he would have even come out in the first place and said that he was punched in the face, which at best case scenario at this point, what happened was that he hit himself in the face with his megaphone when he was pushed. Someone might have pushed the megaphone into his face, but that's best case scenario at this point, and there's no footage of that. I don't understand this new phenomenon that's going on with the left where they pretend to be victims of a hate crime. We saw the same thing with Jesse Smollett, as mentioned. Now, Elliot Page, formerly known as Alan Page, has released a new book, is claiming to be a victim also of a hate crime. And again, under that circumstances, there's a lot of questions. The story doesn't really seem to add up, especially because it happened in LA, where people are very accepting of LGBTQ people. So it's just very interesting that this seems to be their new go-to. Oh, well, I've been a victim of a hate crime. It's quite bizarre to me. Right. I mean, maybe they have some sort of innate public relations uh, knowledge that playing the victim can get you a lot of sympathy and attention and, and they want to boost their careers or what have you. Um, but it, it is unfortunate that we have people like Jagmeet Singh and you know other NDP politicians and leaders who just can't even use their critical thinking skills. They can't question what's happening. They just accept it right away. And that is not a becoming quality Uh, for these leaders to just believe anything. I mean, we know that Jagmeet Singh had a whole NDP fundraising campaign based on the fact that there were apparently 300 active far-right hate groups in Canada. And, you know, several journalists, including us at True North, we tried to investigate, you know, like, what, what list of 300 groups are you basing this claim on? Like, where are the groups? Where's the list? And they just don't answer. Eventually, they stop campaigning on that because... Uh, people are asking too many questions, and it turns out they're just, you know, completely lying and not questioning what the knowledge they're being given. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. A report from RBC Capital Markets has warned that housing affordability in two key Canadian markets is irreparable. The report, prepared by Jeffrey Kwan and entitled RBC Capital Markets Canadian Housing and Mortgage Virtual Conference Recap, which was sent to True North, included this ominous warning. Fixing housing affordability, particularly in Toronto and Vancouver, is likely past the point of no return. Housing activity remains weak, but is showing early signs of improvement as year-over-year comparisons improve through 2023. According to the latest statistics from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, the benchmark price of a Metro Vancouver home was $1,188,000 in May. A detached home was $1,953,600, while condos were significantly less expensive, albeit not necessarily more affordable, at $760,800. The latest data made available by the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board revealed similar circumstances in Canada's largest metropolitan region. In May, the benchmark price of a home was $1,196,101. You can read Neil Sharma's exclusive piece at www.tnc.news. Rachel, if this report is correct, it appears that we've lost 
Toronto and Vancouver as affordable places in Canada. And there's just no going back from this. Uh, we've known, of course, for a long time that they are expensive places, but now they will literally be out of reach for anyone who doesn't, you know, who might not inherit a home from people who are already wealthy and already have homes there. Um, what can we take away from this? To me, this report signifies something that we've already suspected for a long time. Young people growing up in the neighborhoods that they love are kind of looking around when it's their turn to buy a home and start a family and realizing this is really out of reach for me. A lot of them are moving a little further away, if not to an entirely different province. But I think what we need to take away from this report is that this is going to be an issue everywhere in Canada if we don't really take this matter seriously. And yes, we need to look at supply and demand, of course, that is contributing to this problem, but also just the level of immigrants that we're bringing in. We need to make sure that we can provide immigrants with housing and with doctors when we bring them in. And currently these are struggling. Currently, our provinces and cities are struggling to provide these things for everybody. So we're bringing in more people and it just seems like everyone is kind of suffering without the basic necessities that people need, like a family doctor. It's kind of a running joke in Alberta how difficult it is to get a family doctor. And I just think we're bringing in all these people. We're not really talking about these issues and not being able to provide for them in ways to make life comfortable. Right. And the liberal government, they'll respond with this kind of asinine answer that, you know, oh, well, we're going to build in immigrants who are going to, you know, build more homes. We're going to build in, we're going to bring in construction workers. So, you know, they, they literally want to import more immigrants to build home for more immigrants. Their numbers do not make sense. We, we cannot be bringing in over a million people every year, which is what we're doing, which is, you know, the permanent residents and the temporary residents. It does not make sense with the, the levels that we're, we're building right now. In terms of Toronto and Vancouver, you know, Vancouver, it was documented in the book Willful Blindness, which was written by Sam Cooper, that, you know, we, we lost Vancouver kind of because of, you know, because of money laundering, Chinese money laundering. It's documented in the book. I don't know if it's the same story with Toronto, but people will cope with this information that these two places are very unaffordable and they'll be like, oh, it's because they're such desirable and, and beautiful places to live. Well, you know, that's not necessarily the case because now we're seeing Calgary become more expensive and people don't necessarily have the same things to say about Calgary. Although I think people are realizing it's, it is actually kind of a desirable place to live. But I think you're right. We need to worry that this is going to happen everywhere in Canada. It's not just limited to Toronto and Vancouver. Maybe it's like that for now, but very soon it could be everywhere that's unaffordable. And to the government's point of wanting to bring in more immigrants to build more housing, okay, fine, but we need to maybe build more housing before they come so we have places to house them while they build this apparent housing that they're coming to build. So it's becoming a national issue. This report is pretty scary. If you think about it, just you won't be able to own a home in the GTA unless you actually inherit one. That's such a bizarre way to look at life. And it's just marks a totally new transition in Canadian society and for young people growing up. And if we're not careful, this is going to happen to an increasing number of cities like Calgary, as you just mentioned. A Canadian think tank says Alberta business leaders must demand better results from the provincial education system. According to a recent Business Council of Alberta survey, almost half of Alberta businesses are struggling to find workers who have required people skills in areas like communication and leadership. 
In an open letter, Michael Van Pelt, president and CEO of Cardis, said business leaders must become more informed about the well-being of K-12 schooling in the province and advocate more strongly for educational choice. He argued that by doing so, quote, school sectors could produce the graduates with the basic skills and attributes of character that all businesses rely on and that thriving economies require. Van Pell also said basic skills and personal qualities develop early in life and that schooling plays a role. He said, quote, Young Albertans are being formed cognitively, socially, and ethically during these years in ways that will apply to any future job. The Business Council of Alberta survey also found that many businesses are having difficulty finding employees with basic numeracy and interpersonal skills, as well as character attributes such as integrity and a strong work ethic. I thought this was a really interesting piece from Cardis, especially because Alberta is one of the most open provinces when it comes to school choice. We allow charter schools here. I don't believe any other provinces allow for charter schools. And that's something that in a group like the Alberta Parents Union, for example, is often pushing parents to remind them, listen, we have school choice here. That's something you can take advantage of when you're not happy with the results coming out of your school. But this survey is very damning when we look at Students coming out of school don't have basic literacy skills. They don't have basic people skills. And it's interesting because we're seeing shortage in the labor right now. If you were to walk down a street in a downtown, you would see tons of stores with signs on them that say help wanted, cafes, restaurants, clothing stores. All these minimum wage jobs are really suffering. And I kind of assumed that this was still an effect of the COVID-19 pandemic when a lot of people left the workforce and people just didn't re-enter it or at least didn't re-enter it in the same way as they had prior to COVID. But this actually adds another aspect to it where businesses are saying they just can't find young people with adequate skills to employ. Yeah, at schools these days, there are no standards. Kids get endless chances to you know, turn in their work. And, you know, like I said, there are no standards. Even when you get to university, there are no standards. No one's telling these kids, um, you know, behave this way. You can't do that. You have to do this. They don't have that guidance coming from teachers anymore. Um, There's, I mean, that's kind of an overall trend with with North American society is just a a lax, lax rules, um, declining standards. For example, if you go to a conference, usually you would think to dress up. Now you have people wearing jeans to, you know, professional conferences. Or even when I was in university, which, you know, is is not necessarily, is not grade school, like we're talking about in this article, but I would see presentations given by people who, who mumble, who wear hats and hide their face during the presentation, who sit down and, and read off of a paper. Like, this is not, someone needs to tell these people, this is not how you do it. But they don't have that guidance. No one is playing that role in their lives. That's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.